0: Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. It is a good morning, and it's good to be with you. I am uh, happy to be in the book of 1 Peter with you as we start a new series today. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Peter. And the banner over the entire uh, book and also uh, today's title is A Living Hope in a Dying World. A Living Hope in a dying world. First Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 12 is what we'll be focusing in on today. And so I invite you there. As you're turning there, I just want to remind you of uh, the night of prayer that's coming up on February the 26th. For those of you who would like child care, ages 4 and under, uh, please RSVP for that event. But we would love to have you, if you can come for the whole time or just a part of it, to come and to pray It will be a wonderful time to gather and to move around this building and pray for multiple different things in different spaces, um, both individually and as a group. So we invite you to uh, put that on your calendar and to come. Also, that entire day, we are hoping to get people to sign up for 12 hours of praying. And so the email was sent out this week, and we would love for you to sign up for... A thirty-minute slot, or from multiple thirty-minute slots, that you might pray, and we might fill up all those slots, and we would pray for twelve consecutive hours, leading into our time of prayer from six thirty to eight thirty on February the twenty-sixth. So please um, keep that in mind, put it on the calendar, and uh, let's enjoy God forming us into a house of prayer for all peoples. Now I would love to read um, the scriptures for us today, and. <clears throat> thankful that uh, a portion of our text today has been read for us in the time of worship through song i just want to read the first uh, two verses and uh, but the whole sermon will be from verses 1 to 12 beginning of the book of first peter the word of god reads as follows peter an apostle of jesus christ Father, you are worthy of all praise and all glory. You are majestic. You are sufficient. You satisfy every longing of our hearts. You are near to the brokenhearted and you are near to those who call upon you in truth. Father, as we read all throughout the scriptures the greatest comfort for the follower of you is that you are with us and so right now we just we just declare these promises to be true for us in this moment that you are with us and we are desperately needy for you and we just ask that the these last few words would be true that you would pour out your grace upon us that you would give us remarkable Help. You would give us the unmerited favor that can only come from you. You would give us ears to hear and hearts that want to follow you. You would change us in this moment. And we do ask that you would grant us peace. We want to praise you for the positional peace we have with you. And we want to pray that you would give us peace in our hearts, peace with each other. Would you please, Father, multiply grace and peace? To us as a people in these moments. We pray this in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Just this week, we experience Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day is a microcosm of our lives. It can simply be a marker on the calendar where you tell those you love that you love them, and you do it in a surprising or special way. For many children in school, they will do little Valentine's cards, and they'll fill them out and give them to friends. I found some that I found uh, uniquely helpful uh, just for my joy, and I wanted to share them with you. So here's the first one that I saw. I don't know if you can see this. It says this. You are a beautiful human being, but I'm not good at drawing human beings. So I drew a potato instead, but a very beautiful potato Happy Valentine's Day, you know? It's like, I'm just expressing that I care for you. You're a beautiful human being. Here's the next one. Here's one to mom. Thank you, mom, for making me food so I don't die. I think that just really is tender for all moms. They're just longing for that kind of Valentine's Day, actually probably hoping for a lot more. Valentine's Day can also not just be kind of common messages that you give to people to express love. It can be A time when couples communicate romantic love through dating or special meals or flowers. And here's one that a child tried to express here. Valentine's Day is cool. You are too. You can be better, but I like you. (laughs) Probably need some coaching later on on how how to care for those that you love. So... Valentine's Day is also a time when it can be general love, it could be romantic love, but it could also be very difficult because you might not have a specific person that you want to express these feelings of love. It can be a reminder of past hurts or present pains, birthdays, holidays, anniversaries, all of which can be reminders of joy or reminders of pain. As we live in this constantly broken world, we wish that it was different. We long for things to be different. And although there are moments that are filled with great joy, all of a sudden we're slapped upside the face with things are not as they should be. And it's in this reality, in the midst of this bleak outlook on life, there stands a ray of hope. A living hope in the midst of a dying world. The hope that is, in part, the redemption given to us now, but a hope that is a forever hope with Jesus. It's a hope that one day we'll be home. We'll be home. In the radiance of glory, in the midst of beautiful, perfect redemption, perfect harmony, perfect peace, we'll be home. And First Peter is an invitation into this kind of living in between two worlds we are in this world but we are not at home and yet we are promised we are promised that we can have a living hope in the midst of this dying and decaying world as we dive into first Peter Peter one of the 12 apostles you see that in the very first verse Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ He is writing to a group of people, as one study Bible says, who are confused and discouraged. They're confused and discouraged because they're experiencing all kinds of suffering. Specifically, some persecution for their faith. But as we experience suffering, it can bring about confusing seasons, discouragement, times of weariness, And Peter is writing this letter to encourage, to cause us to set our gaze more upon our Savior than upon our pain. And so, as he begins this letter, verses 1 to 12, there are five questions, four questions and actually a statement, four questions and a statement, and here they are. I think that will summarize where we're headed. Who are we and who is he? Who are we and who is he? Also, what is he carrying us to and what is he carrying us through? And at the end, as you see the answers to these questions, what is meant to be evoked in our hearts is praise, rejoicing, thanksgiving for so great a salvation. So where I want to begin is, who are we? Who are we? And it could be summarized with this one little phrase. We're an out-of-place people. We are an out-of-place people. Where do we get this? Look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. Now, we know if you've read your Old Testament history that the people of Israel, they were sent into exile because of their rebellion. They were removed from the their promised land and sent into uncharted territories that were not their home. And now what Peter does throughout this book is he takes phrases uniquely used for the people of Israel and he begins to apply them to the church at large. The dispersion are those who were removed from their home and they've been scattered abroad. Specifically, he's writing to those in these specific regions Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. But these exiles is what they're called. The recipients of this letter are exiles. And he's beginning to frame the identity of the recipient. So we could ask, who are we? As children of God, who does this letter tell us we are? Elect means chosen. Chosen. Chosen, not based upon good or bad done in us, but by God's electing love, a chosen people. As you continue to read on through the book, you see chapter 1, verse 14, we are called obedient children. We're children, part of a family. In chapter 2, verse 4, we're called chosen and precious Who are we? We're chosen and precious. Then Peter takes a whole chunk in chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, and he says this. But you are a chosen race. Isn't this interesting? Israel is the people of God, the chosen race, and now we are all one race in Christ. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's who we are. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. We are excellency proclaimers. We're marvelous light demonstrators. Who are we? We once were not a people, but now we are God's people. We once had not received mercy, but now we are mercy receivers. Who are we? And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 picks back up on this theme that we see right in verse 1 of our text today. Beloved, you're loved. I urge you as sojourners, immigrants, wanderers, and exiles, those who have been kicked out of their home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter is setting the stage to answer the question, who are we? And it could be summarized by We are an out of place people. We're exiles. What is uniquely characteristic of an exile is this longing to be home, longing to be from whence you came, this longing to be home. And so when he presses in upon us, it is this idea that we should not be surprised that we feel out of place so often. That when suffering comes, it's this sense of, of course, you feel disjointed and out of place because this is not your home. This world is not our home. We are made for another world. Any of you who have been experiencing this rampant uh, sense of sickness, you can say an amen. From children to yourself to friends and family it just gives you this longing for this for health to return. It's longing to be somewhere else. I was talking with a friend of mine this week, uh, Kent Caps. He was one of the pastors that helped start Treasuring Christ Church, and uh, God moved him to Tennessee. And when he went to Tennessee, he started pastoring a church there. And he said that in three years. It was a traditional church, traditional in its structure. And so they had Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night. And he had to prepare three sermons a week. So that's basically almost all he did was working on all of these times to preach. He said he preached probably over 500 sermons in the three years. And he said what uniquely struck him in preaching so much in such a short amount of time is the fact that every New Testament book focuses in on suffering every one of them you don't get to read through the new testament without this sense of this world is broken and god's people experience pain in every book it all is just underscoring highlighting exclamation pointing the fact that we are not at home And so, those longings, those sense of displacement that we feel in the human heart, it is in some sense a gift. It's a gift because the disjointedness means you were made for another place. This is one thing I love about Black History Month. As a child, I grew up in a mostly, if not all, white community. I was never told about remarkable artists or inventors or preachers or people of influence and courage from the black community growing up, never. In seminary, I do not recall reading one book by a black author in my over 120 hours of master's But in Black History Month, black culture and experience are brought to the forefront. And things that were kind of pushed to the side are are celebrated. Because people who have been marginalized or their stories have not been told are now brought to the forefront and their contributions to not just America but to the world, there's this sense of thankfulness that these stories come to the forefront but this the black community serves in many ways especially during black history month to kind of be a voice for many minorities who are just like our story matters our voice matters there's a there's a sense of value that comes and I think there is so much to learn and why it's so near to the heart of God that the church is a multi-ethnic church is because then we begin to listen what it means for those who have walked some lives that are a little more exile-like than others. And we can begin to experience what it genuinely means to live as if this is not our home, to face suffering with endurance and courage. To know what it's like not to give up. Stories must be told. Lessons must be learned. Ears must be bent to listen to multiple different cultural experiences. And I think through that we will begin to even understand our spiritual journey that this is not our home. America is not our greatest treasure. Jesus is. And no other citizenship or nationality that we might find is ultimate. We are exiles no matter what we declare on our papers as our home. Jesus is our great home. Persecuted Christians all over the globe. They know what it's like in the midst of their faith to live as exiles. And so, dear friends, if you find yourself experiencing the pains of this world and there's this, there's, this, there's this weariness, just know part of that is by design so that you would long for home. You would long to be with Jesus. And, dear friends, the gospel could not come nearer in this moment because our Savior went into exile for us. So that although in exile, we could be brought home. The grave was overcome so that we would have the hope of a new life, resurrection, the hope of a homecoming. He defeated the grave and he ascended to the right hand of the Father so that we know his authority will bring us home by faith alone. Who are we? We're exiles. But who is he? He's a glorious Savior. That's the other question that is being asked in this text. Who is he? He's a glorious Savior. Similarly to what I did with us, we begin to see in this text what Peter lays out about our God. Who is our God? I summarized it by a glorious Savior, but just listen to how Peter kind of carries it on. Chapter 1, verse 16, our God is called Father. Chapter 1, verse 16, verse 16-17, through 17, Father who judges impartially. Chapter 2, verse 24, He is a sin-bearing Savior. Chapter 2, verse 24, it's by the wounds of Jesus we are healed. He is a healer through His death. Chapter 2, verse 25, He is a shepherd and overseer of our souls. Chapter 3, verse 15, Christ is Lord and He is holy. That's who our God is. Chapter 3, verse 22. He is the one that angels and all authorities, its governments and power, are subject to. That's who our God is. He is the faithful creator that we can entrust our lives to. Chapter 4, verse 19. He is the chief shepherd. Chapter 5, verse 4. He's the one who cares about your anxieties. And He wants your cares. Chapter 5, verse 7. One of my favorite verses in this book, chapter 5, verse 10 and 11, says this. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, that's who He is. The God of all grace, all that you will ever need, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ. He's called you to this being with Him forever. This God will Himself restore and confirm And strengthen and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I think that because that didn't cause you to stand up and shout out loud. We should read it again. Okay. Let's read these words together. And after you have suffered a little while. The God of all grace. Who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. That's who he is. He's that God. And with every phrase that you read, it's like the balloon gets bigger. It's like the walls of protection increase. It's the safety is put exponent after exponent. It's just... Lean into Him. He is trustworthy and worth everything. And so now you run back to chapter 1 at the beginning as our God is described in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God, how did we become His chosen people, exiled on this earth, longing for another place? How did we become that? Because He foreknew us. This God is the one who set his affections upon us before times eternal, before the foundation of the world. He set his love upon his people. Undeserving mercy. This is our remarkable God. The foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. And he has given us his Holy Spirit to make us more and more like him. To encourage us, to give us hope, to fill us with a sense of strength, to do what He has asked us to do. His Holy Spirit is sanctifying us so that we might obey Jesus. And that obedience to Jesus Christ is like this this pool of refreshment. When you walk in the Savior's steps and you love what He loves and you hate what He hates... It's where true safety is found. Where true joy is found. This is our God. And for sprinkling with His blood. Our Savior shed His blood so that we might find ourselves acquitted of our guilt. And not punished for what we deserve. Who is He? This is our God. And we are invited into trusting Him. Leaning into Him. Not Pulling away from Him in our pain. Taking our confusion and our cares to His feet. Not trying to figure it out alone, but going to the glorious Savior who cares. What is this Savior doing? He is carrying us to something and He is carrying us through something. What is He carrying us to? He's carrying us to a living hope. Look at verses three and following. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a what? A living hope. Now, something is interesting about what is happening here. This living hope is not just a living hope among a bunch of living hopes. He uses this describing word to describe hope to set it in contrast to all other hopes. The hope that we are given is an alive hope. And the picture that seems to be painted is that all other hopes are dying hopes. We hope all the time, and those hopes seem very alive, do they not? You have plans today? I hope it doesn't rain. You're looking for a job? I hope I get a job. I hope I can pay this bill. I hope they get me something for Valentine's Day. I hope our date goes well. I hope I pass that test. I hope what I studied comes back to my mind. We use this language all the time, and that hope feels very alive. But at the end of the day, all of those hopes are in things that will pass away. They're hopes that although they might be this high, over time, they're dying. They will not deliver. All other hopes were never meant to bear the weight of the fullness of our hope. Which is why in chapter 1 verse 13... He says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there's a way to hope, and there's a way to fully hope. It's like the hope under the hope. And here he's saying, what happens when God makes you alive is he gives you a living hope that doesn't diminish, but crescendos. It's living And we just need to put every other hope in perspective that although those are wonderful and good things that God has given us to enjoy, they are overall a fading hope. And there is one living hope. One. Look at it with me in the text. How does this hope come into the heart? It's according to God's great mercy great mercy. Mercy speaks to two things. One is that the recipient is miserable. That's the way that mercy is distinguished many times. Mercy is for the miserable. That means you can't fix your problems. You can't solve the the issue. So when he says mercy, it's also stating we were helpless, without hope dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in mercy, made us alive. That's Ephesians. And so what does he say here? According to his great mercy, what is that mercy? It is God's invading love into those who could not fix themselves. His great mercy for us, his great love, he caused us to be born again. Peter's the only one that uses this phrase like this where God makes us alive again and just as you did not make yourself born you did not do that you get no credit God gets all the credit for us being born again that's the point of the image he gets all the credit Because he caused us to be born again. And what happened in that moment with his great mercy is a heart that was indifferent and selfish and self serving. No matter what kind of makeup could be painted on it that looked religious or was very kind, at the core there was rebellion, there was sin sickness, and he made us alive. He gave us a new heart. He caused us to be born again. And what happens in the heart is now a living hope. A living hope. And the text says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, the hope is if Jesus overcomes the grave, then our hope can be secured. A living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. The power is there to secure it. And it's a picture of what our hope is. It is resurrection. It is resurrection. And here he begins to equate the living hope with what's to come. We're born again to a living hope, verse 4, with a view to. The Greek word there is like, it's it's with a view towards something. This living hope has lenses like binoculars that looks forward to something, i.e., the living hope is an inheritance. Look at the text. It's caused you to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Our living hope is an inheritance. Paul tells us in other passages, who hopes for what he sees? Right now, I'm not hoping that I get to preach First Peter chapter 1. I'm doing it. You're not hoping that you get to sit in that chair where you are. You're doing it. A hope is not something that is happening. It's a hope is something that you do not see. And so what he's saying is, although you do not see it, it is glorious. It's a hope. It's a hope. And it's a hope that is coming at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes again, he is the great hope. Set your hope fully on that moment when you are with Him face to face in all of His glory. Set your hope there. Timothy tells us that there is a place where we can set our hopes that's very uncertain. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17 says this, As for the rich, charge them not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Those things are Uncertain. But what we have here is something that is certain. Something that will come to pass. It's an inheritance. Nothing was meant to bear the full weight of our hope except for Jesus. And so this living hope, it's imperishable, which means it never dies. We will not have decaying brains, breaking bodies Death will be no more. Grief will be no more. There will be no more crying. No more sorrow. All of our dying desires will be no more. Every feeling of being let down will be gone. Because the inheritance is imperishable. It's not dying. It's also undefiled. It's not tainted by sin and decay. All things that distort and pervert and break and poison and disrupt our joy will be no more. Sin will be no more. The sin in us, the sin happening to us, even the atmosphere of sin where things are breaking, a breaking world and wars and fractured relationships and divisive politics and racial tension, communication breakdown, sin will be no more. Imperishable, undefiled inheritance and it is unfading unfading never one ounce diminishing never my kids have birthdays at the beginning of the year and as I spend time with them especially my little boy bear justice he got a remote control car it takes batteries. It takes batteries in the controller, and it takes batteries in the car. That's a ripoff. But anyway, <laughs> we put all these batteries in there, and you run that car around, and that thing is fast. And then over time, I begin to be able to run faster than this car, and it just slowly, and then it doesn't do all of its tricks, and it just, you can just see, it's just, he comes, Daddy, can I have some batteries, please? Daddy, I just need some batteries because this thing is fading and it loses all of its joy as it fades. This is not heaven. Heaven does not fade. Never diminishes. If you find yourself longing for something on this earth, you are in exile. But you are longing for an inheritance that is unfading. And we are promised this. This living hope will not disappoint. It won't disappoint. And look at the text it's kept in heaven for you it's kept it's like the 16 year old longing for a car who the car has been purchased at age 2 and now you're waiting until you're 16 to get it it's like those who are in college okay you've been given a house but you gotta wait till you're 40 or whatnot to get the house it's like it's yours you just gotta wait for it this is yours It's not going to be taken away. It's kept. It's yours. And it's guarded through faith. It's guarded through faith. It's not guarded because you are working well for God. It's guarded because you are trusting Him to work for you. It's faith. Guarded through faith. You are not guarding, you're not having this wonderful sense of protection because you are good enough. Charles Spurgeon, I was reading his autobiography, and he says this, who could hope of going to heaven if works were the price? It would be like promising me possession of the sun if I could only jump to it and take it in my hand. It's like, that's impossible. And even if I could jump to it, I'd be incinerated because it's too hot and I can't grab it. This is the utility of trying to lean upon ourselves for this inheritance. Instead, this inheritance made alive in us by our great God is secured by Him, ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, what are we being carried to? We're being carried to an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. It's yours. But in order to get there, we're being carried through something. And that something is a necessary grief. A necessary grief. The only way that we feel like exiles, the only way that our faith is strengthened and not diminished, is through what Peter tells us is at times a grief that is necessary. Where do we get this? He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while. Every single person in here who is experiencing suffering would say it doesn't seem like a little while. But he's saying in the scope of your life, this is just a flash. You've got to trust him. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as was necessary, you have been grieved With various trials. Do you see that? Just put the words together. Necessary, you have been grieved. Grief is necessary. Why? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, your faith has to go through what your muscles go through. When you work out, you actually have to get weaker in some sense. You start out really strong. You're lifting whatever you're doing. You're lifting, but then by the time you keep lifting, you can barely lift anything. You're shaking. Your body's doing this. You've gotten weak. But that weakness is leading to your greater strength. He's saying that this necessary grief must come so that our faith Has to go through the ripping like our muscles have to go through in order to be built back up stronger. And it's a precious faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire. And it's a faith, a faith that gets us to the end. What about our grief? To say that grief is necessary is painful. What causes grief is loss, a loss of dreams. How you thought things should go or were going to be are now a loss, a loss of friendships, a loss of reputation, a loss of abilities, a loss of health. We experience grief so much. And sometimes we just like, I wish it would go away. I wish I would never have to face this again. But I was reading a book. It's called Leadership is Pain. I know it's a very exciting book to read. (laughs) Helpful for me. And he tells a story about a doctor. A doctor who was working with lepers. And as he was working with lepers, what happens in leper colonies is Many times they're isolated because it is contagious. And what kills you in leprosy is not the disease. It's the fact that your nerve endings die and you lose feeling. And so people begin to literally have no experience of pain. And therefore they lose limbs or they hurt themselves in ways that they don't even know that they're doing thinking that there are stories of children who are itching and they have no idea and they're scratching and they're causing themselves to bleed because they don't feel. And this doctor tells this story that he was helping in this leper colony. And as he went home one night, he got in bed and he realized he could not feel his feet. And he said he barely slept that night. Because he was just beginning to dream about now what his life is going to look like as a leper. As one who no longer feels pain. Almost an entirely sleepless night, he wakes up from just an hour's worth of sleep. And he wakes up. And all of a sudden, he could feel the foot that he couldn't feel anymore. And he says, "I was then I went down and he pinched his leg. And it hurt. He's like, I've never been so thankful to feel pain in all my life. And the story was meant to be shared. That as much as we hate it, as much as we grieve, as much as God hates us experiencing this, and he draws near to the brokenhearted, he's compassionate, and there's a sense of weeping. We have to remember that pain is a gift. It reminds us that we still feel. It reminds us that we're alive. And I can't tell you how much pain has helped me empathize with others' pain. There the well is this deep until you experience pain and then it is just like bored down deep and now all of a sudden when somebody says they're hurting, you feel deeper than you felt before pain in many ways, although I would not wish it on my worst enemy. It's a gift. It's a gift. And this is all set in the stage that we are exiles, and exiles though with a glorious Savior who's called us to a living hope. But to get to that living hope, we must necessarily be carried through grief. And that season of grief is strengthening our faith and building our faith and actually helping us feel when maybe we didn't feel before. Giving us a love for Jesus in ways that we didn't know were possible. And you might be in between that. You might be in a season of doubt. You might be in a season where the pain is much larger than the promises. I want to remind you that your God cares for you in the process, not just when you have your act together. But the encouragement in this moment is that he wants you in the midst of your pain, not to act as if it's not painful, but to take that pain to him. And he's stating here that the pain has a purpose. Pain has a point. And the point is, as it says in the text, That we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That our faith will get to the end. That's the point. And so in the midst of our pain, don't forget there's a point. There's a purpose. There's love. There's a design. And there's a Savior who's so glorious, He will not leave you in the midst of it. And that's why He says, verse 8, Though you haven't seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Joy is all over this passage. Isn't that what it, he begins with in verse 6? In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved with various trials. What's the this? It's the fact that our glorious God, worthy of all praise, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that according to His great mercy, He's caused you to be born again. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And if He can overcome the grave, He will get you to the end. He will stay with you. And your living hope is an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's kept by God. His power has secured it for you. It is yours. So in this, you rejoice. He's not asking you to say, yay, I'm happy, I'm hurting. He's asking you to say, rejoice that your Savior is near you in your pain rejoice that you are not going to experience the just punishment for your sin rejoice that your god will get you to the end rejoice that he is your righteousness when your righteousness will never measure up rejoice that sin has been washed and his blood speaks a better word of acquittal rejoice that your savior loves you and that love will not fade rejoice in your salvation that's what we can rejoice in. It's not artificial. It's not fake. It's real. And although we don't see Him, we love Him. And we rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Might not have words, but it's real. It's real. And friends, I tell you, this salvation is so glorious. The prophets long to see it. The angels are jealous over what we see. That's chapter 10, or chapter 1, verses 10 and following. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, trying to figure out who's this person that's to come, and when's he going to come? The Spirit of Christ was indicating in them, When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories, it was revealed to the prophets that they were serving not themselves but you. They were forecasting a future of a Savior to come. And now it's being announced to you through the gospel, the good news, by the Holy Spirit, these things, things into which angels long to look. (laughs) Follow it. You're given today, before you even got here. In the Word, today, a good news, a glorious gospel that angels are jealous that you're experiencing. They're standing in awe of what we get to experience. Our Savior didn't come as an angel. He came as flesh. He can identify with us. He was grieved like we were grieved. He died the death that we deserve and He was raised from the grave. These angels long to see what we see. Broken people experiencing new life. Dear friends, who are we? We're out of place exiles. Who is He? He's a glorious Savior. What is He carrying us to? A living hope, a glorious inheritance. What is He carrying us through? A necessary grief. What's the result? Blessed be. Praise be. Rejoicing in our great God. Let's pray.